My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here, and it is great to be with you. Um, I thought I would let you know this is a classic Advent passage. Uh, so for those of you who aren't familiar with church, we do this every year, right in the middle of Advent. Um, no, if you're new to Roswell, if this is one of your first times, you may not realize, but we are in a year-long series where we're spending an entire year reading through the Bible together. And so therefore, in that process, we find ourselves preaching from what we read from that previous week. And this last week, we spent a bunch of time in First and Second Kings. And uh, now for those of you who've been reading, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who maybe aren't at this point or haven't caught back up yet or haven't jumped in or want to jump in, jump in. It's ripe. Good things are happening. Actually, hard things are happening, right? If you look at this last week, last, last week Steve was talking about Solomon. And we come to this place where God has his chosen people from Abraham, rescued them from Egypt, and he brings them into this promised land. This land from which they are going to be a kingdom of priests for all the peoples. And things get better and better until they reach David, and David finally brings the kingdom together. And Solomon becomes maybe the most powerful, most, most wealthy, most wise king that's ever lived. There's peace, there's prosperity, and it seems like we've arrived. We've reached this, this, this peak of what God had in mind for Israel, his people. Unfortunately, it is the peak. And from there, everything starts descending into chaos. The people of Israel leave the covenant of God. They find themselves prostituting themselves to, to idols. They go after the gods of the people, and they leave God behind. And so king and people go on this slow, not so slow, rapid journey of descent away from God and his love and his covenant. The kingdom divides into two parts, and it's just a mess going forward. And we find ourselves in the midst of this mess of, of kings who are doing what is right in their own eyes in a very real way, following the ways and practices of the people around. And what we find in the midst of these passages is, is prophets that God sends. Because he's not done with his people. He's going to try and call them back repeatedly to his covenant, to his love that he has for them which he's established with them. He keeps calling them back and he uses these prophets. And, and two of the probably most well-known prophets are Elijah and his protege, Elisha. And Elisha ends up doing twice as many miracles as Elijah does, even though Elisha, Elijah is a little bit more famous because he took off in a chariot of fire and like, you know, it's a big departure, so he gets remembered a little bit more, I think. Um, but these two prophets, like all the other prophets, they're the ones who are now living out the covenant relationship with God. They're the ones who are loving the Lord their God with all their heart, their mind, and their soul, and their strength, see? They're the ones who are living that in front of the kings and in front of the people so as to call them and invite them back, to demonstrate the fact that God has not left them, that God is on the move still in their midst, even though the kings and the people have departed from the ways of the Lord and from his love. And so we find ourselves in the passage that we just read this morning seeing a whole bunch of really wild things. And one of the things you see is a whole bunch of comments about blindness and sight, right? You see people being blind and not seeing, and then suddenly being able to see, and then suddenly they can see, and like, oh no, they can see. A lot of sight and blindness. So this morning we're going to look at, at what God's doing here. What, what's happening? What's, what is God showing us about himself? What is he inviting us to look and see about ourselves? And we're going to look at it under two headings. One is the fact that we need new eyes, and that we need a new heart. This passage shows us that we need new eyes and we need a new heart. And then we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like for us. But in verse 17, we see, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, 
the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. If you didn't know where the movie got its name, Chariots of Fire, boom, reference. That's how you know. But he opens his eyes and suddenly he sees something that he had not seen before. You see, Elisha is responding to the, to the declaration that his servant made just a minute ago. He had woken up in the morning and this army from Syria had come and surrounded Dothan overnight. And he wakes up, he's the early riser, he wakes up and he sees that it's covered. All, the entire mountains are covered with this large army from Syria and they're there for them. And it says he was afraid and he screams out, calls out, Alas, my master, what shall we do? This is the, the language of despair and fear. What are we going to do? There is no way out. Elisha can see the full picture of reality, but his servant can't. Servant can't see that there's more going on here than just what is visible to the eyes. So what does he do? He prays, he says, Lord, open his eyes that he might see that there's more than just the Syrian army here. We see really that there's, there's two kinds of blindness, right? That there's a blindness because we can't see. And then there's the blindness because we won't see. Now, honestly, we've spent several character studies looking at the second, right? Talk about Samson. Yeah, blindness that just doesn't want to see. Saul, blindness that he doesn't want to see. Honestly, even looking at Solomon, there was a blindness about him that he did not want to see. So we've looked at that reality of the willful desire to say, you know what? I'm just not going to look at that purposefully, willfully. But that's not the primary purpose around this passage. And, and actually, it's not really where it focuses. It focuses primarily on that first kind of blindness. Blindness because we can't see. So, how does this work? Well, how does this kind of blindness play itself out? Is this, is this common? Well, well, the Apostle Paul helps us understand what blindness of this kind, this spiritual blindness really is. And he points it out in 1 first, uh, first Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What are you saying here, the natural person? What he's saying is like everyone born, which is still everyone, everyone born is born blind. No one can see. No one has spiritual sight. No one can see on their own. They have to have their eyes opened. So, can anyone have their eyes opened? Well, just a couple of verses earlier, Paul says, well, actually, as a matter of fact, yes. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we have received in Christ not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand, perceive, the things freely given us by God. What he's saying there is that there's those who understand because they can see because the spirit of God helps them see. That's the only way in which you can see. Elisha's servant shows us that some of us don't see, maybe can't see. It might be proximity to, in proximity to sight, but we actually can't really see. We haven't received full sight, or maybe we have partial sight. I think that some of us are partially or maybe mostly blind. 
to, to the invisible spiritual realities that are unfolding all around us. The only real thing, the only thing that we believe, that we, that we trust in, that we acknowledge is the thing that is, that is physical, in the physical realms, the things that you know, we, can, we can see, that we can count, that we can maybe predict, things that are concrete, the things that we can control. That's, that's really ultimate reality. That's, that's, where, that's where we naturally gravitate to, left to ourselves. And the reality is that that leaves us to really just trust in ourselves. If there is no other spiritual reality, or the primary reality is only that which we can see, touch, count, evaluate, control, then leaves us with us. Trusting ourselves. And so we find ourselves getting angry, right, when things don't go the way we long for them to, or, or overwhelmed, anxious, despairing, maybe. I saw probably like six articles this last week about just how much depression, struggle, despair is going on currently with all the COVID dynamics. Just isolation, disconnection, unemployment, feels like everything's going downhill. It's like, it's like Israel, right? Kingdom, kingdom just feels like everything's just going down. People are really, really struggling. Maybe that's you this morning. And so, so what are you left with in the midst of despair, in the midst of uncertainty? If you're, if you're only looking at you, if you're only looking at like, man, it's going to be maybe another year before there's any kind of normalcy. Yeah, vaccines, but maybe not. And maybe you can't get one for a while. And it's just me. And there's nothing left to hope on, hope for, to look to. Elisha's servant couldn't see anything but the chariots that surrounded them. That's all he could see. And so we find ourselves as hyper-pragmatists. I've got to take care of me because no one else will. I've got to protect me because no one else will. I've got to defend me because no one else will. I have to build my own reputation because no one else will. I have to, I have to make it happen. I have to accumulate enough for my retirement because no one's going to look out for me. So we don't see the spiritual reality in us or around us because all that is is what we can see. So how do you know if this is you? How do you know if you're like partially blind or nearsighted, maybe farsighted, or, or maybe just blind? Well, here's a couple tells. One is you don't pray. You don't pray because, because that's in the spiritual realm. And how is it really going to help me today? I, full confession, I've said this before here, like prayer is not a natural move for me. I naturally go and depend on me. I'm, I'm not dependent left to myself. Prayer is like a, I must move towards it and choose it. I have to remind myself that it's the truest thing out there is that if God does not move, if, if God does not breathe on these words, like they're going this far, that there is no work that will matter, that there's, there's no affection that I can give that will, res, that will resonate. There's no counsel that will actually bring about healing. None of that is possible if God does not move on it. I, I go to me though, right? If, if I work just a little bit harder, if I phrase it just right, the timing of something is, I go, I go to me, and, and I suspect so do you. Because you can control you, right? That's the second tell. First, we don't pray, and second is we, we struggle with control. Tight grips on the things that we can squeeze. 
How, how tired are your hands today? Because if there is no spiritual realm, if, if ultimately God's not holding all things together by the power of his word, then, then you are. And if I feel like you're tired, worn out, hands are cramping around your life. Another tells you don't take risks. You don't take personal risks. You don't take relational risks. You don't take professional risks. You don't take spiritual risks. You stay with the predictable. Because, I mean, what if it doesn't go well? Then you're left with you. So we're not able to be courageous with our lives. Another tells that we find ourselves looking anywhere but to God for rescue. We don't assume that he's coming. And so we have to come up with a plan and work the plan because we're going to rescue us. And therefore, we don't look to God's resources. We look to our resources. We, we say, okay, what do I have? What have I learned? What are my skills? What are my talents? What are my abilities? What are my connections? I, I go there first and I go there most and I go there maybe only. I don't look to the resources that God has. Which means I'm going to struggle with generosity, right? Because how can I be generous if what I've got in my hand is the only thing I could really count on? Well, I can't give any of that away because it's up to me. I've got to hold on to this to take care of me. And so I can't be generous. I need to take care of myself. And fundamentally, my eyes are down. I think the disposition of the of the blind spiritually is that our eyes are down, they're on our feet, on our hands, on, our, on us, on, on, around, and they're not, they're not up. One of, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 121, and it's an invitation to repent of that kind of thinking, of that kind of heart, of that kind of faith. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Do you hear the question? That's the question of the heart, right? That's the question of the heart that wants to see. From where does my help come? There's the answer. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Not just the Lord who made your today and the ground, and the, but the one who made heaven and earth. He, he, he's the one. So lift up your eyes. Where are your eyes? What are you staring at? What are you looking at? I fear that some of us are, are professing Christians but practicing atheists. Right, we, 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 declare, we declare the, the truths of our theology, but we, but we practice that there is no God. There is just me and what I've got to put forth today to make life work. And it leaves us like the servant needing to have our eyes open desperately. So I don't know, maybe today you're going like, <laughs> you're in this amazing place and your eyes have been on the Lord and as you've been reading through the scriptures, you're finding yourself going like, he's everywhere and he's on the move and I can see him. But maybe not. Now just to be clear, this doesn't mean that we hyper-spiritualize every little thing or, or we allegorize the Bible into our lives in a way that tries to make sense of our lives in it. It doesn't mean that we, you know, we see a devil behind every stubbed toe or, or an angel behind every, like, free parking space. Like, the Lord is here, you know. And also certainly doesn't mean that, like, if you can just name it and claim it, that you'll find yourself in a place where all is well. Prosperity gospel is empty. It's an empty gospel. It will not fulfill. 
So, so we're not talking about false spirituality or faking spirituality or, or hyper-spirituality. We're talking about spiritual sight that the Lord gives. So what if we, if our lives were focused on seeking to look for God's rescue? What if we we were looking for his hands, for his thoughts, for his ideas, for his creativity? What if we we were expecting or anticipating him to come through instead of us coming through? And that we aligned ourselves in light of that. What would that look like to your day? What would that look like when you're stuck on a project or, or in that conversation with your spouse or with your friend and it's going badly and you would have spiritual sight to say, I think something else is going on here. And you would inquire of the Lord and you would listen for him and, and wonder, is, is, is the enemy trying to do something here? Is he, is he putting a rift between us? Or, Lord, I, I feel no creativity. I can't seem to come up with a new idea. I can't seem to work through this project. Lord, what's going on in me? And what's going on out there? Is, is there something pressing in on me? Or is there something that I need to turn over to you? Or, or Lord, would you just grant me and give me what I need, that, that your resources would be enough for me? Or are you just left with you? Am I just left with me? Loved ones, like, I think I've said this before, but like you can pastor, you can preach a sermon in the power of the flesh. Right? I, can, I can do this as a man, not as someone who's spiritually connected to God. It can be done. Trust me, I think I've done it a couple times. Not recently, though, so you're good. <laughs> and so can you. With your parenting, with your work, with your teaching. What if, what if we anticipated his power, his agency, his patience, his work? That would be seen. Verse 16, Elisha says, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That's the, that's the Old Testament version of 1 John 4, 4, which says, For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So do you have spiritual sight? Do you, do you want to see? Are you willing to acknowledge maybe that you're not really wanting to see right now? That you like depending on you more than looking to the Lord? That you like the kind of rescue you bring you? versus the one that God might bring to you. Do you want to see? Because if you want to see, then you can ask God. And Ephesians 1 is perfect because it tells you exactly what happens when you ask God and he gives it to you. This is Paul's prayer that he's praying for the church in Ephesus. This is what he says. He says, I'm pr- this is what Paul's praying. He's saying, I'm praying that, that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may, what? Give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having what? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know, know what is the hope to which you were called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. That's the kind of eyes open living 
that, that, we're, that we desperately need, that, that changes us, that moves us away from fear. This is what Elijah's living right there. He's like, oh Lord, he, he's not seen. There's another reality going on. You, you have me surrounded with your goodness and faithfulness and power. I can see it, but he can't. Lord, would you, would you help him see what reality already is? Would you, would you open the, heart, the eyes of the heart that we would see the riches of your inheritance, what's true about you, and therefore what's true about everything to you? And when that's happening, like Elisha, there is total peace. There's freedom from fear. There's a confidence. And there's a boldness to pray some pretty crazy prayers. So we need a new sight, new eyes. But in order to have new eyes, we have to have a new heart. And that's what we see happens to the Syrian army. The Syrian army gets a new heart. Now you're thinking, are you sure? I did not read that. Go with me. They've surrounded the city of Dothan, and they start charging. And Elisha prays, and they go blind. Now, for most of the time, most of my life, I've actually just thought that they went blind blind. You know, they just, you know, like, where am I? I don't know what's going on. No, that's, first of all, it can't be possible because then, how do they go? Are they all holding hands all the way to Samaria? That's not, you know, like, all right, there's going to be a rope and there's a knot. You hold on to that knot. Like, it's just, you know, this is not the, this is not what conquerors do, right? You know, we'll just, what, you're going to just fight swinging around? No, that's not going to work, right? So, so clearly it can't be full blindness. It has to be, it's a totally different kind of blindness. And this is kind of what it looks like. It's a mental blindness. Similar to, to Genesis 19:11. It's a state of blindness in which they have the eyes that can see, but they're unable to perceive correctly what's going on. Now, this is not canonical, okay? This isn't like, the, the fathers did not say this, but this is how I picture it in 21st century. I picture it like Obi-Wan Kenobi, okay? Those of you who are fans of The New Hope, you know, came out in 1976, seven, something like that. There's this moment where Obi-Wan, the old one, the British one, is with the... Um, is with, uh, uh, um, what's his name? Luke, he's with Luke. <laughs> I've seen it, I promise. Um, he's, he's with Luke and, and they come in and they've got the droids and, and one of the stormtroopers comes up to him and he says, I wanna make sure I get this right because you know, you don't wanna mess up high quality writing. Stormtrooper says, let me see your identification. And what does Obi-Wan do? You don't need to see my identification. And what does the stormtrooper say? We don't need to see his identification. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. This is exactly the picture I have in mind when Elisha steps out of, the, out of Dothan and the armies come down and he goes, this isn't the city that you're looking for. And they're like, this isn't the city we're looking for. The man that you're looking for is over this way man, we're looking for is this way. This is similar to what's going on. This is the best I can do for you as far as contemporizing what's happening outside of Dothan in this moment. But somehow they believe him and they go with him and they're blind. They don't see rightly what's going on. They follow Elisha into the center of Samaria, which is the capital of, of the northern tribes. It is a large city and it is fully armed and they march right into the middle of it and then Elisha prays again. 
and the veil is removed and they can now see, see. And <laughs> I, I don't know what it is, but I always picture the answer of the king as like, like a toddler. Can I kill him? Can I kill him? Can I kill him? So he says, Father, can I kill him? Can I kill him? He says it twice. Like, give me permission. We got him. And what does Elisha say? No. No, first of all, you didn't even get him with your own sword and bow. And if you had, you wouldn't kill those that you've already captured. They're captured. No, 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 no. This is not how it's going to work. The Lord has captured them. And I want to show you what happens when the Lord captures you. So he says, put before him. He says, so in verse 23, he says, so he prepared them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. You see, Elisha, God through Elisha, changes their hearts through stunning grace. He feasts them. And it's not some like piddly little morsel and, and you know, quick swig of water on your way out the gate. It says it was a great feast. They ate and they were full and freely walked out the door. In Middle Eastern culture, it, it, hospitality is like fundamentally different than what we understand to hear. It's true today still, but the hospitality means something that would have been, and the, the, the premise of saying put before them a feast would have been unbelievably offensive to the Jews. Because what he's saying is, treat them like brothers. Act towards them as though you love them. What? What they want to do is what the king said. Can we kill him? Can we kill him? That's, that's what they want to do. These are the guys who come and raid. They, they take away, they pillage, they kill. They're the, they're the bad guys, right, in the story. They're the bad guys in the story. They, they deserve death, right? They're the enemies, right? Lay before them a feast. And what happens? How, how do we know that their hearts are changed? Second half, verse 23, it says, And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. You see? They, they got a new heart by experiencing the gospel, which is exactly how you get a new heart. You get a new heart by experiencing, receiving, and knowing grace. You see, we, we come in as blind enemies, d deserving death from our treachery and, and our sin, our rebellion. We have pillaged and we have killed. We have sought ourselves. We have been enemies of God. And yet instead of death, by grace, we're taken inside the city and we're given a feast. And then we're sent out, not as, not as slaves, not in shackles, not to be servants, but free. Yet bound by love to the one who set us free. That's what frees you. That's how you get a new heart. That's the gospel. 
The only way you'll ever be able to see spiritually is if you've been given a new heart, if you've received that grace in you. And so if you can't see anything, you must begin here. You must begin as one who recognizes that he's blind and could never see, recognizes that she's blind and could never see, and, and cries out to the Lord, Lord, would you take me in and by your grace, would you, through the feast that you offer me in grace, would you help me to see you and to see ultimate reality the way you see it, the way it actually is? So what is... What does living with new eyes and a new heart look like? Those multiple things. For sake of time, I'm going to focus on one central one, the one that is that we love our enemies. I don't know that there is a clearer Old Testament passage to articulate the, the unbelievable, almost ridiculous statements that Jesus makes in the Gospels about what it means not just to love people or to love your neighbor as yourself, which is the Old Testament law. But he just takes it and he puts it on a whole nother level and he says, you're supposed to love your enemies. It's forgotten just how, just how offensive this is. Let me read it from Luke chapter 6. These are Jesus' words. But I say to you who hear, and I would say to those who can see, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Love your enemies. So it's what Elisha does, right? And it wasn't popular he went from being like the hero of Israel who was rescuing, you know, rescuing the king and, and the people, always knowing where the raids were coming and, 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 and thwarting them. So he went from that to the guy who's trying to set these people free. He went from, I guess, like conservative to liberal. I mean, everyone hates him. He's an enemy to everybody. Love your enemy. Love them. Like desire their flourishing. Will their good. That's what he's talking about. That's what it means to love. It's not some sentimentality. It's not an idea. And this is what's great, is that Jesus doesn't just leave it with, hey, so, like, generally, love your enemies. No, he gives you three very clear, very, like, awesome handles as to what this plays itself, at, uh, plays itself out as. He says, do good to those who hate you. I love how he uses enemies, those who hate you, those who curse you, and those who abuse you. So in case, like, anyone gets missed out on that, like, everyone's covered. But he says, I want you to do good. Do good. I want you to actively participate in their good. As you have opportunity, don't, don't withhold the good that you could do for them. Lend to them from your resources and don't expect them to give any of it back. Treat them with dignity. Set before them a feast. Friends, just don't just do good, though. Bless them. Now, for some of us, we can, like, you know, we can find, find out, oh, love him. Oh, love him. I put up with her with love. I want their good over there. But, 
But then it, it's obnoxious. Bless, bless those who curse you. Bless and do not curse. Speak to them and speak about them with favor, not with cursing. Promote their well-being to them and promote their well-being to others. Oh, man. And lastly, pray. Intercede with God on their account. Ask for his favor, his mercy on them, his grace on them. Ask that he would not deal with them according to their sins, even the sins that they've done to you, but according to his loving kindness. This is nonsense. If the gospel is not true, this is nonsense. But, but, but look what it means about those who walk this way, who see this way without the heart this way. Luke, 30, Luke uh, verse 35 and 36 says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And listen, you will be sons and daughters of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Listen, the only people who can love their enemies are those who know that they've been loved when they were enemies. There is no other way. The only, the only people who can be kind to the ungrateful and to the evil are those who recognize that when they were unkind and ungrateful and evil, that, that he was kind to them anyway. The only people who show mercy are people who've been shown mercy. That's how it works. There is no other way. And you, you can't find it. You can't grab it and touch it. You can't find it in yourself. It must be received from him. Do you see why spiritual sight is not just sight for it to work? It's sight for life. hear what's true about you? As you love your enemies, you are sons and daughters of the Most High. You, you manifest the family resemblance to God the Father. You look like your dad. There's another place where it talks about that. When you love your enemies, when you do the most outlandish thing that the Christian call would be, you look the most like your father. Sons and daughters of the Most High. You might say, Matt, if I love and I do good and I pray, like I, I'm going to be taken advantage of. I'm likely going to get hurt. I'm likely mistreated. It probably might continue. There's no guarantee that if I lay a feast before them that they will become my friend. There's not. There's no promise in there. Jesus doesn't make a promise. But, but loved ones, we don't move like that towards one another. We don't move that way towards the people that have hurt us or have, that can or, or will because they won't or, or they'll become friends or, or they'll repent. No, that's, that's not what's in here. 
move in this way because of the unmovable, unshakable, unalterable love of God for us in Christ Jesus. That, that's the only thing that can hold us fast. And remember, you've got chariots. You see, because the Apostle Paul, he, he gives us he gives us that which undergirds this kind of movement, this kind of wild feast giving to those who are enemies kind of living. And he does so by telling us what the reality of his love for us looks like in Romans 8. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen, he who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or, or, or circling army or our enemies or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, through him who loved us. For I am sure, like Elisha was sure, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Loved ones, don't you see that there's, there's a... There's a true and better Elisha. Jesus is the true and better Elisha. He was surrounded by, arm, by an army, by enemies. And though he could have called 12 legions of angels, he says, that's a lot of, that's a, that's a lot of fire power, fire chariots. He gave himself over. He came out of the gate not to lead away, but to be taken, captured, and killed. So that through him, we might receive eternal life and the spiritual protection of chariots of fire for us. He was abandoned by the chariots of fire that we would receive them and have them with us along the way. And you see, he's the true and better king of Israel who asked not to kill his enemies, but to choose, but chose willingly to die for his enemies. The enemies would become friends, more than friends, would become brothers and, and sisters, and they're given access to the feast with the Father and belonging as one who is loved. The hospitality of God towards his enemies was accomplished through Jesus on the cross. And that's what we celebrate at the feast. That's what we celebrate when we take communion every single week. We, we come to this place and we, we take into our bodies the reality that we have a God who does not treat us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, who doesn't deal with us in light of the fact that we are enemies. And left to ourselves, we wouldn't see anything and never could see him. Instead, he comes to us, opens our eyes, gives us a new heart, and invites us to a feast. You've been invited. The truest thing about you this morning is, is none of the things that you failed at or any things that you haven't accomplished yet. It's none of the things that you can touch. The truest thing about you is that you have a king who is coming back and a king who loves you. 
who has made you friend, brother, sister, son and daughter of God Almighty, heaven and earth maker. That's what we celebrate when we take this meal. We remember that reality and we let it give us sight into the true things of our lives. Do you want to see? Do you, do you want or do you need a new heart? Well, this meal is the first step. Another step. That we may become the kind of men and women, young men, young women, and children who freely will walk out into a world and invite other people to become friends of God Almighty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.